Mayor Lightfoot seeks an early payday from casino bidders, asking up to $75 million in upfront cash from the three finalists for Chicago's casino license. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about local housing news, including a look at double-digit home price growth as it reaches an unprecedented 10th month. Worrisome if you're a buyer, of course, because not only are home prices up by 13.1%, but that's on top of the 7% increase in February 2021 over February 2020, which of course was pre-pandemic. So you're looking at big increases in home prices, and we don't yet know when it will stop. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, April 28th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis, how are you? Morning, Amy. How are you? I'm well. I've misplaced my glasses, so we're going to just wing it today. <laughs> uh, well, I can't even see anything with my glasses, so we'll be fine. <laughs> well, if I just can't read words as I'm talking with you, no big deal. No problem. Here, try mine. Sure. Thank you. All right. Well, lots to get into today. Let's start with double-digit home price growth. It has reached an unprecedented 10th month. That's a mouthful, but indeed, that's a big thing. Tell me about it. Tuesday morning, we got the latest Case-Shiller data. You know, of course, that the primary thing we do with Case-Shiller is see how our market is performing compared to other major home markets. But it's also been, especially during this run-up, it's been interesting to see just how strong the price growth has been. I mean, it's it's startling. Yes, we hit the 10th month of double-digit price growth. And double-digit, of course, would mean over 10%, but it's been over 11%, really, for all of those 10 months. So prices for February, home prices were up 13.1% in Chicago. That is actually stronger than the increase in the prior month, which is January. But yeah, it's the 10th month when this national index has found our prices rising by that much. The last big run-up in prices during the two, the early 2000s boom, the highest growth ran for about 13 months, but it only got over 10% once. It was generally in the 9% range, but stronger in every month than during that big boom of the early 2000s. Worrisome if you're a buyer, of course, because not only are home prices up by 13.1%, but that's on top of the 7% increase in February 2021 over February 2020, which of course was pre-pandemic. So you're looking at big increases in home prices, uh, and we don't yet know when it will stop. Not, not what I necessarily thought was going to be the case, but here we are. 
Well, I think pretty soon all the analysts who send out emails as soon as the data is released all use terms like unsustainable, et cetera. And a lot of that applies more to other cities like we keep talking. I keep using Phoenix as an example. So again, our prices were up 13.1%. Phoenix prices in February were up 32.9%. It's uh, I think that's the 34th month that Phoenix has has led price growth. And a lot of the analysts say, you know, this just can't go on. And by the way, a month ago, I said, why don't we line up a uh, a Phoenix reporter to talk about the differences? I did check with her. I don't remember whether I told you she's not available today, but she will be a month from today. So assuming Phoenix is still on the at the very top of the pack, we'll probably have a conversation about, oh, my God, how does anybody buy a house in Phoenix these days? The point of all that is, our home prices are going up quite a bit, but we don't seem to be at that sort of fizzy bubble level that a lot of them are. There were six cities, not just Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix and Tampa were over 30%, and between 25 and 30% home price growth, there were six cities. So these are all places that are running at, at basically twice what's going on in Chicago. So as I say, uh, almost every time we talk about this, Yes, home prices are going up really fast here. It's making it much harder to afford a home. But the consolation is you're buying in Chicago and not in Phoenix, Tampa, Dallas, San Diego. Yeah, definitely. That, those stunning numbers from, from Phoenix. Like, I can't even, I have no words for Phoenix right now. I mean, if you didn't buy a house, you know, 10 years ago, if you've been trying to buy a house in the past couple of years, I can only imagine how depressing, frustrating it must be. Your budget was X and then it had to be X plus 30. <laughs> you know, that's that's scary. That's significant. Yeah. Well, let's head to South Shore and talk about a developer that is offering some modular housing there. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by these. We So we've been talking about this model of home for a couple of years. There's a company, Kinex, that is trying to kickstart, get, get a lot of energy behind building modular homes in Chicago. A modular home is primarily factory built, mostly built not on the lot where it's going to be, but made in modules in the factory, brought to the site and then assembled there. It saves time, but it saves labor costs and other things as well. So the total cost of construction is far lower. Primarily, this company, Kinex, has done projects or affordable housing projects. We've talked about a couple of them. In East Garfield Park, there's one where they're uh, providing 28 homes. So far, they've delivered four. Uh, They've done seven overall in the city in affordable housing projects. This is the first one for a for-profit, or I should say a market price developer. This developer uh, is putting the, put it, has built this house on Ridgeland, 72nd and Ridgeland, is asking 449000 for it. Uh, the idea is he's got three contiguous lots, and should this one go well, he then builds the other two. Uh, It's really, you know, this is modular housing is something that, especially in Chicago, we've been talking about since World War II. And it comes around as an answer to too expensive housing, and then it sort of fizzles out, and then it comes around again. We were just talking about how expensive housing is getting. 
maybe this is a solution. So this developer said that, pointed out that there's virtually no new construction in South Shore. There's a lot of rehab and there are also a lot of vacant lots. If you maybe, you know, that market for new construction that is sort of avaricious in so many other neighborhoods may be, uh, may also exist in South Shore. And people may say, I'll pay a little bit more because I'm getting a brand new house. We've talked about a couple of different approaches to this. I remember one that was like a shipping container that a woman transformed into a house that we talked about at some point and kind of how people have approached this. What does it do to the timeline when you're talking about a, a new construction build? Is it is it shorter? Is it longer? Is it about the same? It is shortened by more if you're building a bunch of them. Okay. Building just this one as sort of a, a proof of concept, you don't save as much time. You, you save time, but you don't save as much as if you were building 10. Um, but <clears throat> again, everything is built to efficiency standards, built to uh, preset cuts and things like that in the factory. And this company has a factory on the southwest side. Uh, and, and then it's all shipped to the site. And it's assembled by trained people who know how to assemble these modules. Uh, and I guess you, you save about half the construction time. The problem is, again, when you build one, it's not the same as building 10. Sure. But you save about, and so that's carrying costs that the builder doesn't have. And it also, I mean, it, it's also sort of, there's a way to, it's a way to generate excitement. You know, yeah. my neighbors aren't just looking at the, the sticks and then the construction wrap. And then oh, finally there are some shingles. And when is this thing going to happen? They see a house being put together like a toy house. If this one sells quickly, then he starts on the next two. All right. Well, let's now talk about a new kind of garden apartment that's coming to Lakeview and Wilmette? You know, these are really interesting. Um, there's a man named David Hovey, uh, David Hovey Sr. His son, David Hovey Jr., is his sort of co-architect on a lot of these projects. He's been building condos, single-family homes, apartment buildings in Chicago and Arizona for 40 years. It's a family-run company. I remember meeting him and his wife in the early 90s at one of their projects in Evanston. Um, he does beautiful modernist architecture, uh, really wonderful stuff. And in Arizona, what he has done a lot of is um, really integrate the plantings into the building. There's a place called Camelback Village that we linked to in the story, and I should have thought to send the image so we could show it here, but you almost can't find the buildings because the greenery coming out of the, the um, terraces and, and all sorts of other apertures just cascades down over the building. And in Arizona, what that does is it makes for a both literally and visually cooler sort of a setting. He says they actually reduce the ambient temperature by about 12 degrees. It also looks less harsh and hard-edged and burned by the sun. It looks like, you know, a, a plant oasis. So he's been doing that in Arizona for years. In Chicago, he's been doing green roofs. He has a, or had a big project in um, Skokie that people might know called Optima Old Orchard Woods, which is some big towers that seem to sort of fit 
into each other as you drive up the Edens. And those have big green roofs. There are others where he's had green roofs. But he's trying to bring some of that Arizona stuff he's doing to a project that's opening right now in Lakeview and one that will open in about a year in Wilmette. Um, in Lakeview on Broadway, what he's done is put all that garden inside. It's a very urban setting. So um, the, the photos we have aren't great because the plants are brand new, so they're shrimpy little things. But the idea is you're in this atrium. This, the size of the atrium is, I mean, it, it's, it's like an atrium in a shopping mall. It goes up several stories. It's got a 90 by 30 foot um, skylight o- above. And the floors step back. Each one at the end is planted. So what, what it will come to look like, but what it doesn't really look like yet, is sort of a hanging gardens of Babylon kind of an effect. You're inside this greenhouse or this atrium with the plants sort of falling down toward you if you're on the bottom level. So while inside, where we spend a lot of our time in Chicago, you'll have greenery all around in this in this really wonderful sort of verdant setting. So that's sort of, he, he tried that as sort of an interior version of what he does in Arizona. But in Wilmette, which again is coming later, this building that you see on the screen is a little bit more like what he does in Arizona. It's going to have a lot of plantings on the balconies and the roof that all the, the plants are selected to droop down over the side. Obviously not the same plant species as they use in Arizona. Sure. Um, He's been working with a nursery here to find plants that have sort of a similar effect but can stand our awful winters. And um, so you'll, I think when this building opens in Wilmette, it will at first not be quite as visible just as the Lakeview one is now. Um, But it will come to be much more of a green looking building than we're accustomed to. If it got to the point of, I haven't been to the buildings in um, Arizona, but I've seen lots of pictures. If it got to that point, it would be, it would become sort of a visual landmark. And um, these, so these are both rental buildings. And the idea he says is that this really is an amenity, uh, especially, so he has divided his time as an adult in his adult life between Winnetka and Arizona. And he knows the what it's like to live here. I'm sorry, not Winnetka, um, the North Shore and Arizona. And he knows what it's like to to live in this winter. And he sort of talked about the idea that in that in that atrium on Broadway in Lakeview, you'll you'll feel warmer. You'll feel less as if winter is pounding on the top of your head. And so that it actually is sort of an, an amenity as much as a fitness room or a, a movie theater or whatever else. Yeah, being able to see greenery in the middle of winter here, that's huge. That's a giant amenity. You could go out, essentially go out for a walk around the different floors the way uh, your grandma walks through the mall in the winter. Um, You could go out and, and, you know, wander through the building and, and actually not feel quite so oppressed by winter. Kind of feels like spring hasn't ended, isn't it? Because I've just made like six references to how bad winter is here. I know, I know, right, for sure. Well, it's been kind of chilly the last couple of days, for sure. All right, well, let's go now to a prairie-style cottage in Winnetka. We talked about this one when it was up for sale earlier this year. Um, this was sort of a, a relatively famous prairie school cottage right around the corner from New Trier High School in Winnetka. Um, Interesting, interesting because it's a part of the Prairie School, which is our architectural patrimony in the Chicago area. But 
unusual because it was designed, it's two stories. First story was designed by Walter Burley Griffin. It was designed as a one-story building, designed by Walter Burley Griffin, who is the man who just a few years later left Chicago to, with his wife to design the capital of Australia, also did a lot of work in India, really took Prairie School to other continents, Walter and uh, Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Mahoney Griffin. They did the, he did the first floor. She was not involved, as far as I can tell. And then later, one of their cohorts, Barry Byrne, added a second floor. I have never found out why, who the, but, but the first floor is by Walter Burley Griffin. The second floor is by Barry Byrne. And uh, Barry Byrne is famous for a lot of really great churches in the Midwest, including St. Thomas the Apostle in Hyde Park, which is one where you just stand and gawk. Uh, this has stood on this site, or the first floor, has been there since 1911. Later comes the second floor. And last year, 2021, it sort of dodged a demolition controversy. You might remember we talked about uh, a buyer bought it, not knowing that it was a land or not a landmark, but a, a well-known building. It doesn't have landmark status and sought to demolish it. The village board, the village historical board could only put one 270 day demolition delay on it and did that expired in September. Those owners then could have built because if you don't if nothing if nobody comes along who will move the property or there are no other alternatives found once the 270 day demolition delay expires you're good go ahead and tear it down instead several months later they put it on the market i don't know why i was not able to reach them uh and that's where we ended the reporting about a month and a half ago. Now we know, at that time, I didn't know who was going to buy it. It was bought by a builder, a very prolific builder, Heritage Luxury Homes. They have built more than 100 houses in Winnetka, Glencoe, and other uh, North Shore communities, a lot of them on the lake. They bought this property, which, I, again, is right around the corner from New Trier High School, for $850,000. And they're, they have now started advertising the replacement house they'll build. Because again, remember, there's no more demolition protection available. This thing is going. I haven't been to the site uh, since I wrote this story to find out if it has been demolished, but it will be demolished. And I think, don't we have an image of what they're putting in its place? It's a rendering, of course. That's an 8,300 square foot house, six, six bedrooms. They have it priced at just under $3.8 million dollars. I didn't think it was likely, but I crossed my fingers and hoped that a preservationist bought it, that a preservationist said, okay, the demolition delay is is passed, but I can get in there and really put that thing back together. Um, but crossing my fingers did no good. Um, it was sold to a developer. And, and I mean, I have to say the developer, it's an established developer. They've built all over town. They're a known quantity. Uh, had I known at the time of the sale that they were the buyers, I wouldn't have bothered to cross my fingers because it would clearly have been a teardown. All right. Well, let's now talk about a house in Maywood. So this was the home of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton, and it is getting landmark status. It is. This was very quick. Uh, it was in August that I reported they were really starting a big push to get it landmarked. Fred Hampton is the leader of the Chicago area Black Panthers who was slain in his apartment in the city in 1968 by a sort of coalition that included federal and Chicago and Cook County law enforcement personnel. So that's the story. He was slain by 
his own government. And his family has owned this two flat in Maywood since 1958. His parents, Francis and Iberia Hampton, bought it in 1958. I think I said when we first talked about this, it sort of has two strands of black history on the site because his parents came up from the South in the Great Migration and so and have owned and the family has owned the house since the building since 1958. So that's sort of one strand. This is a Great Migration house in a sense. Uh, And then the other is that Fred Hampton grew up here. And it's not just that, you know, he was a kid playing in the front yard. When he was a kid in this house, Fred Hampton was protesting uh, the whites only policy at the municipal pool in Maywood, which came to be named for him later. He was also protesting uh, the whites-only policy for the homecoming queen contest at Proviso East High School. Uh, so he like he actually did something while he lived here. You know, my childhood home would be, yeah, and he sat on that porch. But Fred Hampton's childhood home is a place where what he went on to do was really being formed. Um, and by the way, Proviso East also has a space named for Fred Hampton. I think it's the the area where the room where the black students organized their protest. Uh, so his son, who's seen in this picture, who's who's who goes by Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., uh, he started a petition drive to get it landmarked last fall, and landmarks officials said in Maywood said, yeah, we this seems like something we would do. And then it sailed through. When it went to a meeting uh, in mid-April, there was unanimous consent. The head of the Landmarks Commission in town basically told me nobody objected. Everybody thought this was a great idea. It's uh, He said it's really one of the first cultural landmarks in Maywood. Maywood has an amazing architectural history and has a lot of architectural landmarks. Uh, but now this one, um, where Fred Hampton lived for much of his childhood and which his family has owned from 1958 through today, is also a landmark in Maywood. So interesting that it sailed through so quickly. Not surprising at all. It just seems like anytime we've talked about landmark stuff, it's taken such a long time to, to get it passed. I think part of it is that the process is shorter in Maywood than in big Chicago. Uh, but also there was like nobody objected. You know, everybody said, yes, we absolutely absolutely should do this. And that sort of helps it sail through any obstacles that might otherwise have been in place. Like somebody saying, you know, no, I want X to be studied. Everybody said, yeah, let's do it. All right. Now let's go to a house. Uh, this is an interesting house. You used Call of the Dunes in the headline of this story, which I thought sounded like, oh, that sounds like a vacation. Count me in. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's the term that the the daughter of the couple who built the house used. She said that they felt the Call of the Dunes. This house, which just makes me swoon is in Dune Acres, which is one of the there for people who don't know the Indiana Dunes, which are just absolutely spectacular, have sort of tucked into them a couple of really sort of isolated little communities. Uh, Dune Acres is in a sense the most isolated. It's surrounded on three sides by uh, Indiana Dunes National Park. And in fact, the sand we're looking at is National Park and the house is privately owned. Um, it's uh, Dune Acres is two miles wide and about, I think, a quarter of a, maybe a half a mile deep residential. 
And uh, this couple, in 1959, he was a patent attorney employed in Chicago. She was an at-home mom. They felt, according to their daughter, the call of the dunes. They really wanted to live in the, in the Indiana dunes, as I do. And um, they built this house carefully to disturb as little of the dune as they could, to capture the views of both dunes and Lake Michigan as well as they could. That was 1959. They raised three, uh, it was a full-time home. It was not their part-time home. Their dad took the South Shoreline in, worked on LaSalle Street and took the South Shoreline into the stop next to the cultural center every day during his career. Uh, and now, 63 years later, the family, the children, the three children who grew up there are selling the house. And if I had $3 million, I wouldn't have written this story. I just would have bought the house. But look at this. So here you're sitting in the living room. We saw just, you know, you're not sitting that far up above the beach. And you've got out those far windows, you've got dunes. And then uh, the, the windows that are essentially on the left. <clears throat> and on the right, you're looking down as the dune sort of rolls out to the lake, <sighs> I just have to sigh. <laughs> just sigh. Yeah. Just heavy sigh. Yeah. What's cool about this area and this house is that often when we are looking at houses that have those you know, big windows or a big glass wall looking out over water, it's kind of one or the other. You either get woods or water. And this one, you get both. You, have, you feel kind of enclosed by the woods. And then you have this beautiful overhead ceiling with wood. So it has this kind of treehouse-like feel to it. And yet you also get the, the beautiful lake view too. You do. And, and that was intentional. They were, they, this couple went on to be leaders in the Save the Dunes movement, the movement that prevented construction of a nuclear power plant, prevented more uh, uh, more industry. We've got the Gary Steel Mills and things like that, but we also have 15,000 acres of dune, of Indiana dunes that were saved, uh, partly by, partly because of the efforts of Save the Dunes and other organizations that this couple, the Osmonds, were involved with. And um, they were, so they were sensitive to that early on. They, their daughter told me they had the house designed to disturb the dunes as little as possible, which is good because the dunes were there first and you're being ecologically sensitive, but it's also good because you get the kind of view you just described. You're actually in that setting, not sort of above or, or outside that setting. Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect, uh, the way, what you were describing, it sounds like such a perfect way to kind of combine the built world and the natural environment together, right? Often we just kind of like impose ourselves over the natural environment and just say, here's the built environment on top of it. But to kind of work it in and work, make them work together is really kind of lovely when you see it happening. Yeah, that's really well said. You should have written this story. I just spent my time sort oh. of sighing about the <laughs> photos. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Yes. And it's and so one of the things that the, the daughter who is sort of uh, the lead of the three children selling it, one of the things she told me is that uh, the house always reminds you where you are. You know, it has these windows. It has, I mean, you see the lake changing all the time. She mentioned in the morning, the first thing you do is you get a cup of coffee and go see what the lake is doing. Um, and I, I think, I, I mean, I, I can understand why you'd hold on to this house for 63 years, because who wants to let go of a setting like this uh, when you've done it so Right. When you've got so they've got national park land just off their property. They they're they're really sitting in a in a, a quite an isolated sort of a place. The beach, I checked to be sure, 
if you don't live, Dune Acres is a gated community because it's surrounded by national parks. So there would be an enormous amount of traffic in the summer. Uh, if you've tried to get into uh, what's that next beach over the, I think it's the Indiana Dunes, Indiana State Park Beach is the next one over. I tried to get in there once last summer, and the the cars are backed up for well over a mile. So if you were trying, if if you weren't in this gated community, or if this community weren't gated, you'd have people just you know parked right up on your porch and things like that. People can only get to these beaches, she said, or people can only get to these beaches by boat and by hiking in. And what she said is, you know, that's like twelve weekends out of the year. The rest of the time, she said, you've got all this to yourself. Really beautiful. And you can, at times, you can see the skyline. You're 45 miles from the loop. Uh, I, so, you know, somebody might pick this up as a second home um, or try what they did and live over there. The, the South Shore is going to be going faster, as we know from a um, from past stories on houses like this. Um, the South Shore is getting double tracked. There will be more trains. So it'll, it may become an even shorter commute than her father had to make. And with more people working from home, maybe right. if you have a situation where you don't have to be in the office that often, that would be kind of an ideal living setting. Sure. All right, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? It may be changing. One of the things about that uh, Case-Shiller data that I didn't mention is that's all sales before interest rates started to climb in March. Ah, very good point. We may start to see things change dramatically, and I'm hoping I can get out ahead of, of that with a couple of stories. Certainly. All right. Well, we will talk this time next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. See you then. Coming up, why Chicago hotels are flying against the law of supply and demand. With costs up and labor scarce, owners see no profit in filling rooms at lower prices. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Crane's Chicago business is pleased to welcome U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg on Thursday, May 12th, for a special event discussing infrastructure insights. Political columnist Greg Hines will sit down with Secretary Buttigieg to discuss the impact of last fall's historic infrastructure bill and potential for projects throughout Chicago. Tickets are selling quickly, so be sure to reserve your seats now. Registration is open at chicagobusiness.com slash cranes events. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The Lightfoot administration is upping the ante for the three finalists looking to build and operate the city's casino. Citing sources close to the matter, Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that the administration asked teams headed by Hard Rock, Bally's, and Rush Street Gaming to agree to pay tens of millions of dollars up front to the city if they win the prized gambling rights. The mayor reportedly is looking for $40 million now plus $2 million a year down the road, or a total of $75 million if all the money is paid now. Hines noted that it's not clear whether the cash would go toward the general city budget, which continues to be under some financial pressure, or to specific neighborhood projects or other purposes. Nor is it clear, he said, whether the money would be an early payment of taxes the casino eventually is expected to pay or is an additional add-on. In a written statement, the city appeared to confirm that such payments are being sought, but declined to provide details. 
The city statement said that under state law, taxes directly on gaming must go towards city pension expenses. Hines also reported that industry sources say that such requests for upfront payments are not uncommon nationally. In any case, the three final sites, the Tribune Printing Plant property at Halstead in Chicago, the 78 development at Roosevelt and Clark, and a location that's part of the one central development on Metra Air Rights just west of Soldier Field, each have drawn strong local opposition in a series of recent public hearings. A controversial proposal for a new hospital in downstate Quincy was approved by the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board on Tuesday. Crane's healthcare team reported that the board is allowing Quincy Medical Group to move forward with building a small format nonprofit hospital, which owners say will provide more innovative care and services not offered in the rural area. The facility will have 28 beds and cost about $61 million to build, according to board documents, and is expected to be finished in April of 2026. The board also approved a separate $2 million freestanding birth center that QMG also proposed in Quincy. Both facilities will be built on the campus of the Quincy Town Center, which already houses the QMG Surgery Center and Cancer Institute. QMG originally filed its application for the small hospital in 2020 and has faced opposition from a nearby hospital operator, Blessing Health System. The nonprofit three-hospital chain has argued that QMG's new hospital would siphon off its profitable surgeries and privately insured patients that keep it afloat. QMG, however, has defended itself by saying it's looking to introduce more competition in Quincy's healthcare market and provide services not currently offered in the area. QMG has alleged that Blessing's opposition to the project was spurred by its desire to maintain a monopoly on health care in the region. The former CEO of Optum RX has launched a new Chicago-based health tech company that just raised $35 million as it seeks to combat increases in prescription drug costs. Waltz Health raised the funding in a Series A round led by Google's investment arm. Financing also came from Define Ventures, Echo Health Ventures, Blue Venture Fund, Buyers Capital, Twine Ventures, as well as undisclosed healthcare executives. Waltz says it's working to give consumers visibility into available programs to save money on life-saving medications. Its first and primary product is Marketplace Search, a search engine of drug discount data sources that pharmacies make available to their customers. Waltz, which sells its software directly to pharmacies, won't disclose who its clients are, but says it plans to announce major pharmacy chain clients later this year. With the new funding, Walt says it plans to invest in product development and hire more workers. It employs about 20 people, but says it plans to add between 50 and 75 this year. And like Walt, another Chicago startup called Calderos is also building a drug discount product that it hopes will bring more transparency to drug pricing. Founded in 2016, Calderos has raised more than $35 million in venture capital funding, according to startup data from Crunchbase. People looking for hotels in Chicago this year have plenty of choices. They just shouldn't expect to find bargains. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that while occupancy at downtown hotels so far this year is still close to 25% below pre-pandemic levels, the average rates that guests are paying for rooms has surpassed 2019 figures each of the past four months. March data on the downtown hotel market showed guests paid an average of nearly $174 per night, which is up 12% over the same period in March of 2019. Crane's commercial real estate reporter Danny Ecker has more. This is such a strange thing on the surface. There are a lot of empty hotel rooms around the city right now, primarily in the bigger full-service hotels that rely on group events and business travel. 
But logically, you'd think, okay, so that must be reflected in the price I will be paying for a room. But when you look online to book a room in downtown Chicago, it's the opposite in many cases. And it depends on the day of the week, but you'll likely be paying more than pre-pandemic prices. There's multiple factors in play here. Inflation is certainly one, uh, but the big driver is that the cost of labor and goods and other expenses for hotels like property taxes are all a lot higher right now. So if you're a hotel owner, lowering your rates to try to fill more rooms just has diminishing returns. It's sort of an artificial right-sizing of supply in a market where there are way too many rooms for the amount of demand we have right now. It's good for most hotel owners, obviously, who are trying to recover from a really brutal two-year stretch here, but it's not good news for price-sensitive travelers. And there's some nervousness out there in the local tourism sector that the high cost of lodging in the city might keep some people away this year, which is something they cannot afford. Ecker also noted that this surprising aspect of the comeback for hotel owners signals a dramatically different recovery path than the industry's trajectory after the Great Recession, when occupancy in Chicago took three years to return to normal and room rates took six. That according to data from hospitality data and analytics firm STR. Hotel operators point to a mix of factors making hotel rooms among the many things costing consumers more in 2022. Part of the reason may be that business travelers and those tied to the meetings industry, which often get discounted rates that would weigh down the market average, have yet to come back in a significant way. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.